All right, I'm on the road. There's no music. <laughs> uh, we're uh, we're just going into unknown territory. Uh, I have a guest with me. We're in uh, parts unknown in Central Oregon. I guess now you know the parts. Uh, my guest is Bill Sizemore. He's um, run for governor several times. Got pretty close in '98. Uh, well, I got pretty close. I won the primary overwhelmingly, but I, uh, uh, I I got trampled in the in the general. So I wouldn't say it was really close. Do you think that was a fair election? Uh, was was or, were they doing? Universal mail-in balloting at that time? No. And do I think it was a fair election in the sense that the the votes were counted correctly? Yeah, I think so. Uh, was it fair in the sense that the left-wing media just totally piled on top of me for months on end and lied through their teeth? Uh, e- easily proven that they lied through their teeth over and over. In fact, the Oregonian newspaper spent tens of thousands of dollars on one story that they, they spent months with two reporters uh, just documenting what they thought was a, well, I don't think they even believed it was true, just uh, an expose on Bill Sizemore, who is this guy. And they, <laughs> uh, in fact, it was kind of interesting. They, the story that came out on Sunday, uh, first front, top of the page, Sunday edition statewide, uh, back in 98, in April of 98, it was designed to keep me from winning the primary. And they uh, who did they who did they want instead of you? Anybody but me, because the other people were kind of there was a former state Republican Party chairman who was kind of a he was pretty far out there. Uh, I'm conservative, and he made me look liberal, so he was very very far out there. And they would rather have anybody but me because their goal was not for me to lose that election. Their goal was to destroy me so I could never do what I was doing effectively, and that is put measures on the ballot that cut taxes and, and challenge the power of the uh, political establishment. So you were like the Donald Trump of Oregon State <laughs> in, back in 98. Yeah. It, it, in fact, there's, there, are way, there are way more similarities than uh, I realized at first. The things that they did to me and uh, uh, the the lies that they told. I mean, it was just total hysteria on the part of the left at the thought of Bill Sizemore actually having a chance. What was the worst lie that they told about you? Well, they had a they were doing a story on my financial background that I had um, filed bankruptcy back in 1987, and so they wanted to make sure everybody knew that I was a terribly flaky person, a bad businessman, et cetera. And so they, I had just passed two years earlier, I had just passed a measure that cut property taxes in Oregon by about a billion dollars, which compounds, you know, every biennium, uh, every two-year budget cycle after that. So today it's, you know, 15, 20 billion dollars, it's cut taxes. I had just accomplished that and they wanted me badly to go away. So they wanted to prove that my, that I was a terrible businessman and had, and, and they went, they had to go back to a business I had shut down in 1985, which I did. I was bankrupt. I was a young guy in my 20s, started a business that uh, doing great, selling lots of, pro- pro- lots of product, carpet stores, flooring stores. But I 
was terrible at handling the money of it. And I didn't realize that you can't be on TV nonstop. If you're, uh, if you're, yeah, I was making, I was making profit on every sale and doing well, except I was, uh, spending a lot of money on advertising on TV. And uh, in the, in the end, I was actually losing money, even though I was making money on individual sales, my overhead, especially in the advertising realm, was just out of line. It was a lesson I needed to learn, and I, and I learned it. Well, what they did was they hired these two uh, reporters to go around and talk to everybody I had uh, done business with, people that invested in my company, uh, and they would interview them, and they would do uh, uh, get, they would go through an entire interview looking for one quote that they could take out of context and use to say something bad about me. And in fact, I didn't realize the extent to which they had done that until the Republican State Convention in 1998, and I was the keynote speaker as the Republican nominee for governor. And uh, I went to a fairly hostile audience because the Oregonian had just smeared me so badly that I looked terrible. Uh, I got up, though, in front of this audience, and I started speaking and telling things you know, in my own voice, not filtered through a left-wing media outlet. And uh, by the time the speech was half over, I was getting standing ovations, you know, every other sentence. And the, 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 the audience, the Republican precinct committee people and, and all the party officials were totally on board. Well, one lady came up, came up to me afterwards, and this has never been publicized. I've never said before what I'm going to say right now. <laughs> this lady comes up to me and she hands me her business card. And she says, I'm a notary public, which to me means nothing. You just, you know, mm. check somebody's ID before they sign something. <laughs> and she said, uh, but I was hired... Uh, for a couple of months by the Oregonian to follow their reporters around as they interviewed people and notarize their notes so they couldn't get sued for what they were saying, what they were going to say about you. And she said, but I have to tell you, I read the article that they wrote when it came out, and it totally misrepresented everything that everybody said. When the Oregonian reporters would come up to people that you had done business with in the past, they would only have good things to say about you. And then the reporters would start saying, well, what about this? And do you know about this? What about that? And she said they would go on until they would get them to say uh, something like, well, I didn't know that. And if that's true, blah, blah, blah. And then that's the quote they would use. And it was a totally totally gross misrepresentation of what people actually thought and said about you. People generally considered you a very good person, honorable and all that. So uh, the ability of the media to totally distort someone's background and their history uh, shows that you really can't believe anything they say because you don't know what if you don't know the backstory and what really happened, you would not know that what they are telling you may be all technically true, but it is a, it is a 5% representation of the truth, and you're, they're just piling up all this negative stuff, and they're ignoring the 95% positive stuff. So by having the, the notary follow their journalists around to notarize their notes, this removed any liability that they could have if you went after them with a with a libel suit was that ever was that ever on the table or ever a, a possible did did anyone around you or yourself consider a, a defamation suit or anything like that well i will tell you i you, you immediately consider that but if you know what the rules are 
generally based on uh, court decisions in the past, a person who has some kind of celebrity status, which I already had. Oh, prior so to you're a public, governor, yeah, you're a public figure and exactly. they can't. They can pretty much say whatever they want to say. And very rarely does anyone win a slander or libel or libel suit uh, in those cases. I, I have been, I'll give you another, exa- another example. The Oregonian, uh, not the Oregonian, the, the OEA, Oregon Education Association, Teachers Union. They ran some ads back in uh, election in, I believe it was 2000, maybe it's 2008. I had a bunch of measures on the ballot in both of those elections. This was through your work with Oregon Taxpayers United. Right, measures, a- measures I'd written, collected the signatures for, put on the ballot, raised all the money for, etc. cetera. Uh, the Teachers Union didn't want people to vote for my measures, so they, they, they did this f- full-color uh, advertisement that said, don't vote for these measures because Bill Sizemore put them on the ballot. And he has, Bill Sizemore has been convicted of fraud, forgery, and racketeering. Now, this was, of course, news to me, having never been, <laughs> never been even charged with any of those crimes in my entire life. And they had me convicted. So I did sue them. Uh, my organization sued them. And But then all they have to do is... You 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 sue them and then they just write a retraction. No, no, no they were, they weren't even willing to do that. They were they were arrogant enough that they knew. So they wanted to fight it. No, this is what they didn't want to fight it at all because they didn't want me to get discovery, and which is the early stage of a lawsuit where you get to find get to demand all these records and all the emails that they had written back and forth to each other and find out to prove that they knew this was a lie when they said it. Clearly a lie. Uh, and so I filed the lawsuit, and the, a judge in Salem in Marion County uh, says, okay, I'm going to allow discovery. These statements are clearly false. The teachers union go immediately to their friends on the Oregon Supreme Court for what's called a writ of mandamus, and mm. got them to order the judge that they, he cannot let us proceed to discovery unless he holds an evidentiary hearing and finds that these statements are legally false. Well, he did that. He held a hearing, and he says, yep, they're false, and we're going forward. They went back to the Supreme Court, the teachers' union did, and they got another writ of mandamus. And this judge later said, I've had never had two writs of mandamus against me in my entire career as a judge, and I've had two in this one lawsuit. And this, essentially the second time that the Oregon Supreme Court ordered the judge to drop the case. No going to trial, no jury, no... Uh, uh, discovery, nothing. You, you just dropped this case. And the judge, his, essentially, this is what he ruled. When I say essentially, I'm just, I can't quote him word for word, but it was essentially he said, well, I guess Bill Sizemore has been convicted of fraud, fortune, racketeering, <laughs> even though he's never even been charged with any of those crimes. And so this case is dropped and the teachers union can say Bill Sizemore has been convicted of fraud, forging, racketeering, even though he hasn't. So what was your what was your agenda that they were so terrified of? You so you win you win the primary to be the Republican candidate for governor. Let's say you go on and win and you become the the governor of Oregon as a Republican. What why were they so terrified of that reality? What what were you gonna do to them? They weren't. They weren't terrified of that. I was running against John Kitzhaber, a uh, emergency room medical doctor, uh, the, kind of the Marlboro man, cowboy mm-hmm. look, and perfect Oregonian type candidate. He looked like he could be the third member of Brooks and Dunn. Yeah, totally. Exactly. <laughs> Brooks and, and Dunn and Kitzhaber. And he, he was not vulnerable 
He was not beatable. There, there was no polling that got me within 30% of him. Right. When, what did you get? 27%? I got like 30, 31%. 31%. But they, the, the problem was they weren't, this was not about me, me not winning the election. It was trying to destroy me so that I couldn't, I would have, I would have no credibility going forward to put measures on the ballot. And they, they were, uh, they were very afraid of that. And in fact, I had consultants from Washington, D.C., uh, well-known around the country that ran U.S. senator races, uh, gubernatorial races in other states, congressional races. I had those kind of, that level of consultants for my race. And when they saw what the Oregonian newspaper and the media was doing to me, they were perplexed. They said, Bill, I have never seen this in my life. You're 35, 40 points behind in the polls. When somebody's 35, 40 points behind, you ignore them. They're irrelevant. And yet, they are coming after you with a venom that almost seems spiritual. It's like they hate you with a passion. And so, they're trying to destroy you. And, and it's so counterintuitive to, to, for somebody to, uh, for a media outlet as big as the Oregonian newspaper, statewide, the only statewide newspaper in the state, to spend so much resources trying to destroy a guy who's 35, 40 points behind in the polls. And they, uh, uh, but that wasn't what it was about. It, it was, I mean, it wasn't about me losing the governor's election. I only ran because nobody else would. There were four other people who were running, but they were all nobodies. And I was famous at the time. And so I thought it'd be fun to debate the guy. I didn't think I could beat him. I wasn't running to beat him. It just was, it was a fun run for governor. Hey, let's run for governor. We'll get to debate John Kitzhaber several times in, on TV, et cetera, which I did. And they were, uh, uh, the, the end result was they just determined that he's not going to win this, but let's make sure he's dead when this is over with. <laughs> so what is, the, what, what is the motivation? Because they didn't, it, when you lost to John Kitzhaber in 98, they didn't stop. It kept, they, they continued on. <laughs> well, that's a funny story. And what, what was the next, the next big, I mean, was it, was it revenge for stuff that you had already done or was it, uh, you know, fear of what you were going to do or what you were capable of? Well, the, the main political reporter for the Oregonian, I won't name his name, but he was their main political reporter. Uh, call him Jeff. And he, uh, Jeff comes to me. And that, that was in 98 that I ran for governor. He comes to me early in 2000 and he comes to my office and he says, for an interview, and he says, I want you to explain something to me. He said, you ran for governor last time and you got creamed. You lost by more than 30 points. And you had a measure on the ballot and it lost. And so we, talking about the Oregonian, we thought you would be dead. And now you are, here you are putting seven measures on the ballot, something nobody has done in a hundred years. And how do you explain that you're not dead and that you're putting seven measures on the ballot, which is basically setting the total political agenda, all the discussions in the state for the next election cycle. And they, uh, I said, well, let me tell you something, Jeff. I don't know if you can understand this or not. But... When the Oregonian attacks somebody who's a conservative, conservatives consider that a badge of honor. You think you destroy me, but really amongst my people, the conservatives in the state, you make me stronger. You make me somebody. And they don't believe what you write anyway. 
you know, most of what you write is baloney. Well, that's a popular sentiment among conservatives right now. Like, oh, exactly. if they're attacking him, he's over the target. <laughs> exactly. That's he's, like verbatim what, what get, they say. He's getting flack because he's over the target. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I was over the target. I had found out what the target was exactly. Something nobody had done before. And I'll tell you, the target was completely different than what everybody thought it was. The target was stopping public employee unions from collecting dues, force coerced dues from public employees that feeds the union political coffers. The reason the teachers union, SEIU, AFSCME, American Federation of Teachers, the reason those unions control politics in Oregon is because they had the ability to take money out of employees' paychecks using the public payroll system to collect political funds. And so they had, you know, millions and millions of dollars more than anybody else did. And what I had just put on the measure, put on the ballot, was a measure that said you cannot use public resources, including the public payroll system, to collect money that is used for politics. I didn't even mention public employee unions. I just said you can't use any public resource, and I specified what that meant, uh, to collect political funds. And people read that, and they said, well, yeah. That's not right. You shouldn't be using taxpayer stuff to collect political funds. And so even though they were Democrats, they still found themselves inclined to vote for my, quote, good government measure. And so once I had found that I had identified what was really the supply line of the enemy, those coerced union dues, uh, that meant that I was was a threat to the entire Democrat-controlled establishment, political establishment in the, in the state of Oregon. Well, and the labor unions too, because if you're, if you expose on a, on a broad scale that these, these people are paying their union dues and okay, it's going to their insurance and to their other, you know, perks that they get for being members of the union, but there's enough left over to contribute millions and millions of dollars to these political campaigns. Well, now they're, they're these union employees are going to go, well, hold on a minute. Maybe we're paying a little bit too much in dues if you can finance all of these things for us. And I mean, were were the people, the members of these unions even happy with what they were getting for their union dues outside of raw political power? Well, there, there was a second version of that measure that I just described about no public resources being used to collect political funds. And I also put that measure on the ballot in 2000. And that measure said, you cannot deduct political funds from an employee's paycheck without their signed or written consent. And unions were totally in panic. All unions were in panic about that mode because what it said was that if you want public, uh, a, a union member to donate money to a political cause, you, have to, you actually had to get their permission. And the, the way the status quo at the time was that they just take the money. And a few people could do be fair share people or what where they don't have to pay all the political dues, but but ninety some percent were were paying the dues and they were funding, even if they were, you know, usually thirty some percent of union members are Republican. Another twenty five, thirty percent are are usually uh non affiliated or independents. But ninety eight percent of all union money on the average was going to Democrats. And so the Republicans uh wouldn't wouldn't have donated to the union political causes. Because it, it, it supports Democrats and they're Republicans. And the independents didn't want to support either one of them, per se. So uh, once you started asking for, if you, if you can have that law in every state that nobody can have any money taken out of their paycheck for politics without their written permission, 
unions lose 90% or more of their political donations. And that is the lifeblood of the Democrat Party in every state in in the union. And so I had identified that as well, and I wasn't the only one around the state. The, the, the no public resources to collect political funds was my idea, and it got picked up in other states and passed. They called it the Oregon model. And, uh, but the, the other idea of no, no, no taking the money without getting permission, that was be, being pretty much recognized around the country. And in fact, I think it was Pete Wilson in California had just put it on the ballot in the state of California uh, right before we did. And his measure failed because he made a fatal, fatal mistake. Whenever you go after anything, this is really inside baseball, so I won't dwell on it too long. Anytime you go after anything that the unions don't like, especially the public employee unions, and that's usually who I'm talking about is public sector unions, they, you have to put it on the ballot in a general election. You don't want to put it on the ballot, and others have made this mistake, and I pointed it out to people, but usually after the fact, and they learned their lesson and didn't do it in the future. But you don't want to put it on the ballot in a special election, even a primary, where the turnout might be 30 35% at the most. What, uh, because what, one thing unions are good at is get out the vote. GOTV is their strength. So you put it on the ballot in a general election, like in Oregon, the average presidential election, in November of, you know, even-numbered year, those typically have 85 80% turnout. So unions, if they get out the vote, it's only on the fringes because almost everybody's going to vote anyway. So it doesn't matter. But you put it on a ballot in a May primary or in a special election, say March or September, and you're going to get creamed because the unions will get the vote out even though the end result is not representative of the general public. It is representative of those who actually voted. So... Uh, uh, this this is a game that is is it's very much if you don't know what you're doing and I learned kind of I'm, I'm not going to say I'm the smartest guy I'm going to say I'm the guy who did things enough times that I learned through the school of hard knocks mm-hmm. what works and what doesn't work and I taught a lot of other people around the country some and I could tell you people that are well known around the country who like Tim Iman in the state of Washington who would routinely call me for advice what should I do here Bill what what mistake am I making I'd say ah. I'm glad you called me now instead of later. Here's what you need to change, blah, 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 blah. And so, uh, I, but I learned those things not because I'm a genius, but because I got the crap beat out of me a bunch of times. Yeah. Or I made mistakes where I, I say, oh man, if I hadn't done that, I would have won. Well, and, failures offer the most yeah, valuable exactly. lessons learned, right? Yeah. Well, and ben, ben Franklin is famous for saying that experience is the best teacher and a fool will learn by no other. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I tried to make sure my cohorts around the conservative cohorts around the country didn't have to learn the way I learned. Yeah. And, and then we, we run into this problem. So you were saying that the, you know, the unions were instrumental in, in mobilizing their workers to get out and vote against the issues that were coming up in, in less popular elections, but also the media participates a lot in that too now. And, and even more, and you were kind of on the, the cusp or the, the tip of the spear in, in being a casualty of, of the fake news. Um, but so in- they, they lived to smear me at the time. You're, you're talking basically between the years 94 and 2008. And that period where I was actively putting 25 measures on the ballot in that time period. Uh, they, it, was, it was like I was on – if I took the newspaper clippings 
about me, not the newspapers, just the clippings, the little, you know, one sheet of newsprint uh, stories about me, this, and just stacked them on top of each other, probably 20 feet tall. <laughs> I mean, boxes and boxes and boxes. Well, and, and boxes. they're, they're doing it's the all, same thing. All smearing me. They're doing the same thing. Even now. I mean, up until the most recent sensation with, with DeSantis sending busloads of, of immigrants to, uh, Martha's Vineyard. That was an airplane, by the way. Oh, true, true. <laughs> they, uh, oh, that's right. The Democrats used the buses exactly. to get them out of there. My bad. Um, but it was it was on. Uh, still, Trump was the top of every every uh, of page for CNN and MSNBC and CNBC. So was do you do you think that there was an element of? I mean, we're talking about ninety eight. Was there an element of? what we call clickbait now was there any was there any consumer uh desire to get that kind of information no they weren't they weren't responding to a market desire they had an agenda and every story was aimed at that i'll tell you something that i've never this i think's fascinating because have you ever noticed like on fox news and some of the other stations some of the evening shows they will show Clip after clip after clip after clip after clip of Democrat or left-wing media on CNN, MSNBC, ABC, NBC, CBS, etc. And they're all saying the same things using the same words. And it's like, who sent out oh, yeah. that memo that they all are saying the same thing? Well, I was being covered. Yeah, if you, if you, um, if you Google or you know, whatever search engine, uh, Sterling Media Group, is the name of of one of those companies that sends out the the teleprompter guidelines like this is what and that's why you have these compilation videos of exactly what you were talking about all of these anchors saying verbatim the same thing over and over again well i went from being talked about in the media every day there was not a day saturday or sunday included where i wasn't on television even if it was an old clip, there was not a day when I wasn't in the newspaper. I mean, literally, I was in the newspaper. I had a clipping service that, that cut out and sent me the clippings from around the state where I was talked about. And it was every day, everywhere. And almost all negative, 90, 98%, 99% negative. But all of a sudden, it stopped. Overnight, it stopped. And I'll tell you a story now. People, I won't tell you any names other than it was the Oregonian newspaper. But a guy calls me, gives me his name, says, I work at the Oregonian. I'm no big shot here. I'm just an average Joe. And uh, he said, not even maybe mid-level. He said, I, uh, I bring my lunch to work every day, sack lunch. And one day, I was just looking for a place. I like to, I like to you know, sit down alone in a room and read. And, and one day I happened to just see an empty room and it was the conference table room where the big shots, the editors, publisher, the main political reporters, et cetera, they meet and discuss what they're going to do. And I just sat down at the table and all the papers were pushed to the middle of the table, all the notes. There were no, no, nothing around where people were sitting. He said, that's the way they do it is at the end of their, at the end of their talk, everybody pushes their, uh, agenda papers and stuff to the middle of the table and then somebody comes picks them up and shreds them 
He said, but they hadn't picked them up and shredded them yet. And I'm sitting there and I just, you know, while you're eating your sandwich, you like to read something. So I just reached over and I pulled back a piece of paper. And there were three items on the agenda for the, for the meeting. And one, number one was, how did Bill Sizemore uh, come to have such influence and prominence in the state of Oregon? Because I was just a normal guy. I wasn't elected anything. I just was putting measures on the ballot. And he said, and the second question was something like, uh, how can we end Sizemore's influence in the state? And three, how do we ensure that no one like Bill Sizemore ever rises to this much power and influence again? And he said, I was shocked because I didn't even think that our newspaper had an agenda like that. I thought we reported the news and we had editorial opinions over here. But he said, but I was shocked to see that they actually had an agenda to destroy this guy, make sure nobody like him ever comes to influence again. And uh, he said, now, don't use my name. He told me his name. He said, don't use my name and, you know, copy my job and et cetera, et cetera. But I, what was interesting to me was shortly after that, no more calls, not from television stations, not from radio, not from newspapers. My wife could attest that I would get awakened on Saturday or Sunday morning at 6.30 or 7 o'clock in the morning with an unexpected interview request from you know the biggest radio stations in town about whatever was going on that they wanted to talk about. And I was a regular feature, nonstop. I would go to work in the morning in my office at Oregon Taxpayers United with nothing on the agenda for the day. Nothing for me to do, but I, I never worried about that because I would end up nonstop interviewing with, with newspapers, radio stations, you know, live on the air or, or, or recorded interviews, television. I would have sometimes three or four television reporters waiting outside my door to come in, set up their lights and mics and uh, interview me. It was an everyday thing. And it went literally from 10 interviews a day to zero. So why do you think that was? They decided the reason Bill Sizemore had the ability to raise as much money as I raised, I raised millions of dollars and put 25 measures on the ballot. And the reason I had that was because they had made me their go-to guy to talk about everything that comes up in politics. So go, go, Bill Sizemore, he's always there, you know, he, and he'll have an opinion on everything. And, and I did. I, I did it for a living, so I, you know, I was knowledgeable of pretty much everything that was going on. And so uh, they decided that they had made me, they had created me and made me this person of noteworthiness or influence, and they could pull the plug on that as quickly as they had opened the floodgates. So do you think that was because they knew there was public perception? I mean, we're talking about the Oregonian, right? Right. Do you think the Oregonian knew that there was a public perception that they were being dishonest about you and that even though they were creating negative stories about you, there was still a sentiment that you were, you know, like we said, over the target by half of their readership? I don't think so. Not by their, their, or did they their just, fan base was that way. Did the money that was funding the anti-Bill Sizemore stories disappear no i i think they were uh, uh their readers were totally on board with what they were saying about me and it, they but they and they knew that the conservatives were not going to uh 
uh, believe what they said anyway. This is what the, uh, this is again insider baseball, but I am 100% sure of what I'm going to tell you right now. Their goal was to so stigmatize me, smear me so thoroughly that big wealthy donors, and I had several that would write six figure checks for ballot measures, that they would be, I'd be so stigmatized that they, would those big donors would stop giving me money because they didn't want to be associated with me? Because when they gave money, it was going to be the newspaper. And there were guys like Wes Lamada uh, who owned Columbia Helicopter, which is the big, big helicopters that they log with, they move, they move a barge with. You pick something up that you wouldn't believe can be picked up and lifted into the air. Uh, you know, he was a six figure donor several times. Robert Randall, who built 35,000 apartment units in the city of Portland. Uh, these guys were worth hundreds of millions of dollars and guys were worth, uh, Dick went from Gerald Wynn, uh, a person worth a couple billion dollars. And he was a, you know, six figure donor as well. Uh, they, they wanted those guys to no longer be willing to be associated with me. So they had to tarnish me tar and feather me, if you will, so thoroughly that the money's the money would dry up. People that were totally on board, that were conservatives, believed in what I believed, and considered me a champion, and they were proud to be associated with me, even though the Oregonian hated me, they wanted me so stigmatized that those guys would even be afraid to give me money. And that's what they succeeded so, in doing. That, that, that required even pr- criminal prosecutions to make that happen. Did... Was there, a, and you don't have to name any names, of course, but who, or how many times, I'll say, did someone approach you, did a, a big money donor approach you with an idea for a ballot measure that was self-serving to them, wasn't for the good of, you know, the citizens of Oregon? Yeah, that's a fair question. When what were they asking you to do? The funny thing is, they never asked me to do anything ever. Uh, all of the measures that I put on the ballot were measures that I dreamed up on my own and approached them and said, here's what I'd like to do and here's why it's a good idea. And uh, would you be willing to support it? And if they liked the idea and they thought it was good for the people of Oregon, the state of Oregon, the business climate for Oregon, they would support it. One time, I told one of my donors, uh, in fact, I'll, he's passed on now, so I'll say his name. Well, he was, I'll just say he, he built thousands of apartment units in Portland. And I told him. Did he already say his name? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I said, you, uh, Bob, this measure will save you hundreds of thousands of dollars a year in property taxes. And he stopped me immediately. And it's the only time he ever talked to me like this. And he rebuked me. He said, I never want to hear how I will benefit from what you're doing. I That's only impressive. want to do what's good for the people of Oregon. If it's good for the Oregon, or if it's good for Oregon, I'll support it. Don't tell me what it'll do for me. So these people, I mean this this person at least, but I would imagine other donors also were politically minded, but not for their own benefit. That seems hard to believe because we've just gone through talking about how the unions, which were responsible for keeping schools closed through a lot of the pandemic. We're funding politicians and, and even in direct communication with the CDC to keep, you know, schools shut down to what benefit? I mean, we can, we can speculate, but also money flows into universities that can then be, uh, 
contributed to political campaigns. So why, why were these people, why weren't they more involved in politics? You mean the wealthy conservative people we were, I was talking about? Yeah, why, why was there? They're busy running their businesses. They, that, that's a, that's a, the thing about, and maybe this generation, that generation, I mean, almost all the guys that were my big donors have passed on now. And, but they were people that um, believed in the American it, thing. I'll just, I'll just be blunt. I'll just be blunt. Why, did you feel like they were paying you to be their punching bag so that they could shield themselves from the backlash that you got from the mainstream media in, no. in Oregon? No. In, in fact, they were uh, uh, routinely named in the newspaper as people that supported Bill Sizemore's efforts and funded me. And so they got attacked for that. And they got at the cocktail parties, they would get slapped on the back with a yay, thanks for doing that, Bob or, or Dick. Uh, or they got, you know, ridiculed for support and Sizemore stuff. So they were, they were people uh, that uh, they only donated because they believed in what I did. And I, when I went to them, I had to say, this is why this measure will make Oregon a better place to live, raise your family, run your business, et cetera. And if they liked that, they were for it. If, it, if, it, if I named something that they didn't like, they just said, oh, I don't see how that'll really do any good. So uh, it's, it's one of the things that Democrats, forgive me, but the left wing of the Democrat Party, at least, that they do is they're... It's their mantra, and it comes back down from Saul Alinsky's School for Radicals and that whole approach to make the people, the common voters, hate the boss, hate the rich guy, uh, and who built his fortunes on the backs of the proletariat, the common workers. And uh, they, they do that so almost religiously, the unions do, the left wing does, that they anytime somebody is rich, they... And they're conservative. They get attacked unmercifully, mercilessly, or whatever the word is. But interestingly, you know, if uh, if a big left wing donor uh, that founded Facebook or Amazon or or uh, or Google or whatever, if they uh, donate money, if they're rich, they're always still good people. That mm-hmm. they they're visionary. They're they're community minded, etc. Well, and there was even a story. Uh months ago that barely made a blip on the radar. And it was when the new Disney CEO that replaced um, Iger, Bob Iger, I think was the guy that, that retired or right. died or something. He wanted to be less political. It was rumored that maybe he was a little bit more on the conservative side and he wanted to do less political activism stuff and just be a corporation that does business and you know, whatever Disney's huge. They own thousands of companies and he was immediately silenced and gagged. And, you know, I imagine thrown in a dungeon somewhere where they could just (laughs) feed him pancakes under the door. Yeah. And then I think this was after, was this, this might've been after DeSantis took away Disney world's, uh, you know, Basically, preference, yeah. owners, yeah. Basically, Disney owned their own country within right. within Florida. F- within Florida, they could do right. whatever they wanted within these limits. And then Disney got political and said a few things about Florida. And so DeSantis said, "Okay, well, we're gonna get 
we're getting rid of that. And it was this huge outrage. And right. now Disney's big leftist political organization again. So why do you think that the, I mean, is, is that the reason that you were saying, you know, all of these kids come up through these colleges that are influenced by foreign donations and then they go to work for these companies and the CEOs are basically lame ducks. They're too afraid to do anything because it's going to upset productivity. And then it becomes this struggle between the CEO and the shareholders and the CEO can't get his workers to do anything because he's a conservative rich guy that is, you know, the, the bane of all our existence and the ultimate threat to democracy. And so he's, are we all just afraid to lose our jobs? And that's why we keep just get your shovel and go down to the mines and shut up. I, I think you're talking about the nature of bureaucracies in general, whether they are in the private sector or the public sector. And the reason somebody like Trump, for example, gets in and that you change the head and then he, and he appoints his own cabinet members and those guys all are, have his same philosophy or supposedly have his they same philosophy. They pretend to. At yeah. least for the moment. Uh, but you see that throughout that bureaucracy, permeating it everywhere, is that those people that have been there for a long time, the swamp, and they have the same view that uh, Obama had, for example. And so uh, it, it, DEQ has still got the same kind of far left-wing activists, environmentalists, radicals, etc., doing the day-to-day -day functions of the bureaucracy. And so you change the head. It doesn't really change anything because the people down below by the you get down to the second or third layer of management and on down that's all the same people with the same agenda that they had before and they're the ones where the rubber actually meets the road as that bureaucracy fulfills whatever mission it has and i think the same thing is true at a company like uh, any any non-entrepreneurial company that becomes a, a giant bureaucracy uh, and disney is probably the, as good an example as there as there is of that that they have, you, you can change ahead all you want, it doesn't matter. They have all, they have a tremendous uh, no, number of uh, gay activists, LGBTQ plus type activists in, at Disney that have an agenda that's very, very far left wing, radical, uh, the whole transsexual, transgenderism uh, bureaucracy or a mindset philosophy. And they are, they're, they are, perpetrating that or promoting that promulgating that on the in, in, in on the public and through their movies that they make and they make they make characters and cartoons that are now noticeably gay because that's their agenda and the guys at the top are really not uh get involved in the day-to-day -day operations of the company that's generally not what ceos do anyway and the ceo's job is to oversee and make sure the company is making money Basically. So where it, it, it seemed to me, and maybe you have a different opinion, it seemed like suddenly Donald Trump, Donald Trump became president and everything was cranked up to 11. You mean the rhetoric? Well, yeah, this, the, the narrative, the, the LGBT push, the, yeah. the uh, you know, Antifa protests. They're, not, they're no longer flying under the radio radar under Trump. But the CEO was the CEO hadn't changed. It was still I mean was 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 the phenomenon the the phenomenon of of these of, you know the LGBTQ activists and and 
all of that narrative pushing was that always there and just exposed more when when Donald Trump became because it strikes me that these the outrageous stuff the drag queen story hour and and the, the things that it it seems to me deliberately meant to just stir up anger among the parents of these kids the the parents that wouldn't be participating in this kind of stuff with their own children so we i mean on one hand we say there this it's part of the bureaucracy but if the CD, the ceo didn't change the bureaucracy didn't change that much between 2014 and 2016 at least in D- in disney and these other media companies because it happened with everyone and it was part of the me too movement also like suddenly you couldn't everywhere you looked somebody was in trouble for sexual assault whether it was founded or or not and girls were being raped in in bathrooms by trans girls that had been transferred to that school because they were raping biological females in their bathrooms as trans girls at that other school so did it was it exposed through Trump taking office and and that sort of um, conservative America first agenda being undeniable by the people in in control of of the media or i i to me it feels like this was all meant it it was it was a punishment for us, like you elected Trump, and now you won't be able to look anywhere without us making you miserable about something. And then it all culminated in the COVID pandemic and the mass formation psychosis that we were just learning about. And it, it doesn't, when, when we go back and talk about all of this stuff that you were suffering through in 98 and 2000 and on throughout your life, these attacks, it seems, I feel like, wow, it's really been going on for so much longer than I thought. But then we get to 2016 and Donald Trump gets elected and suddenly the entire world is thrown into chaos. Well, uh, were, we building, were we building to that point going back to 98 or, or before? Or did something, did something break? There is e- evil, if I can just be blunt about what I would call it, uh, tends to be insidious. And it, it flies be below the radar uh, for the most part when it can, and it just builds, and they, they're working towards a goal, and they're working to accomplish that. And what, what can happen, and this, and this is just my theory, what can happen is that when someone comes to the, a point of, of leadership that is strong and has an opposing view to that evil agenda, the evil kind of loses its mind, and it manifests. Uh, if, you for, if you'll forgive the religious analysis, Go for it. when Jesus was on walking about on the earth doing his three and a half years of ministry, there was demonic activity around Israel, around Jerusalem and wherever he was, everywhere. He was casting out devils all the time. They were manifesting, doing all kinds of crazy things. And it's like, it's, it's, they always existed. 
and, 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 and I'm, I'm a Christian, and I Bible believe in Christian, and I believe in those kinds of things. They always existed, but uh, when he was there, it was like oh, they they marshaled the troops and they come out of the woodwork to to do battle with him, so to speak. And I think when when Donald Trump stepped forward, he he stirred up that thing that was going on, that evil thing on the far left. And and it and it, it doesn't just involve socialism to the extent of uh, economics, but also that uh, ungodly, secular, uh, sexual divert. What do you what do you call it? perversion? All this stuff. It, it riled that all up till it came to the surface. Plus, the average conservative or traditional minded citizen was emboldened by having someone like Trump in charge, and they began to speak out at, at um, school board meetings and protest what they find out their kids were doing. Plus, with, with the, uh, uh, you, you probably saw it with the uh, pandemic, parents were home and their kids were on, on, on the computer taking classes online and getting lessons, and they started seeing what their kids were actually being taught, and they freaked out. Legitimately, for legitimate reasons, they freaked out and they saw that my kid is being taught that if he's white, he's a, he's a racist, and my kid is being taught that he may not be a boy just because he has a penis. He may have, uh, uh, you know, if he's ever played with a doll, he might be a girl, really. And he need, you need to, you know, help them along to transition to what they really are on the inside. Just crazy things. And parents started seeing that sort of stuff, and so what there really was was an exposing or pulling back of the curtain, so to speak. And that's why all the confrontations I think that are going on now is because there, there has been an awakening on the part of parents and conservative and traditional value, people with traditional values that caused them to say, you know, hey, I'm willing to go to war. I'm willing to go to the, to the mat uh, to stop my child from being this brainwashed. I knew they were being taught, you know, some liberal stuff that I didn't agree with. I had no idea the extent to which this uh, agenda existed and how uh, widely it was being promulgated. So do you think that this is the end times? Do we, do we return back to, to normalcy and, and getting along? I, I wonder if it's... If Donald Trump winning the election created a sense of desperation among the establishment, both the left and the right, the, the establishment that desires a new world order, a one world government, you know, that they talk about in, in Revelation. And part of the reason that this, these narratives and, and these evil efforts were exposed because of their desperation to fight back against you know, because Hillary Clinton was supposed to be the president. Everybody thought Hillary was going to win. Yeah. I mean, up and, until a certain point. Yeah, it freaked them out, and they actually went insane. It certainly seems so. Yeah. They, they were not prepared for that, and the extent to which they were willing to go to elect a kind of a, uh, a brain-numb brain person like Joe Biden to be their president, they were willing to do anything. Uh, whether they cheated or not to get him in there, they were willing to do anything to make sure Donald Trump wasn't president. And I, what, what was fascinating about the rise of Biden, and did not to go down this tributary too far, but uh, was that here we go with, like, what was it, nearly 20 people running in the Democrat primary? And uh, 
Uh, Biden is getting creamed in primary, 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 not even placing primary. And then comes to one election, was it South Carolina or North Carolina, I don't remember, I don't remember which, in which uh, the, uh, the local senator uh, stands up and, and speaks for, for, for Joe Biden. He wins that primary and everybody drops out. Why do you think that happened? It was, it's all, they had marching orders. This, Joe Biden was chosen to be the one. For whatever reason, because they could handle him the most easily, he was the most malleable, uh, he was incapable of doing anything uh, by himself. Uh, what, whatever reason they had for doing that, uh, it, they, they, they picked him and everybody else just fades away. And these are people that were very ambitious politicians. And, and are still. And, and much more articulate than he is. And, and how you go from that field, and I wasn't impressed with any, but there were some of them that are fairly articulate, but I was not impressed with them overall. But how you go from that group down to Joe Biden and a ridiculous, f- foolish Kamala Harris as the president and vice presidential nominees for the Democrat Party is just mind-blowing to me. I, 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 I can find no rational explanation unless somebody has an agenda that's very anti-American. And then they get 81 million votes. Yeah, supposedly 81 million votes. To overcome. And, and wasn't, the, uh, wasn't the statistic something like uh, they both got the most votes in history? Some like like Don or or uh, well, Trump got more. Trump Trump won, and then he got like eight million votes when he runs again, more than he got the time before, and he still loses. And that is uh, loses to a couple of numbskulls, and that's just kind of like hard hard to fathom how that could actually happen. Yeah, I do. You think that the anti-Trump sentiment in the country was so strong at that time that? People just were, they didn't care who, because I know that I voted for Donald Trump the first time because I wasn't going to vote for Hillary. I I voted against Hillary Clinton. I didn't vote for Donald Trump. I voted for Donald Trump the second time. But you don't think that there was that strong of a sentiment. No, I don't. There was, there's intense hatred amongst the far left, but that's, that's not even close to majority of, of the people in this country. Intense hatred there. And I understand that. He was a real threat to everything that they believed in, including insulted their intelligence. <laughs> but but uh, overall, I don't think the public the public looked at Donald Trump and and I'm I'll just I don't know if you and I have talked about this, but I voted for Donald Trump in in 2016 very hesitantly. I was afraid that he would get the country with his lack of foreign policy experience. I was afraid he'd get the country into World War Three, and the whole world into World War Three, and. Uh, but I, but I wasn't going to vote for Hillary no matter what. So I voted for Trump and yet on election night, and I'm just, you know, I'm bearing my soul a bit here, but on election night, after I'd voted for him, uh, I watched the results coming in and I'm, it was some trepidation and all of a sudden it was clear that Donald Trump had won. And in my spirit, if you will, I felt something jump, kind of leap for joy. Like, I did too. Like, this is good. This is a good thing. And I thought it was like the lesser of two evil kind of things. And I felt, no, this is a good thing. And in 2020, I voted for him enthusiastically, even though I didn't like to hear him talk. I didn't like his tweeting. And I was not a fan. I didn't. Well, I, didn't. I was really disappointed in the debate. 
Yeah, I, I just I didn't like so many things, but how he had governed and the people that he had surrounded with and his overall policy, except for maybe the pandemic and choosing Fauci to run that campaign. Uh, other than that, I thought he was actually one of the better presidents in modern history. Well, there were some interesting things. I don't know how true they are, but I, I heard some very interesting things about what Donald Trump was allowed to do in the last year of his presidency. And um, specifically when they impeached him again for the January 6th thing. Right. It was rumored that people like Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy and establishment Republicans were saying things like, if you fire this guy, not necessarily Fauci, but just as an example, if you fire this guy, if you pardon this guy, if you declassify this information, the Senate will convict you. I never heard that. Uh, I, I would not doubt that, that the Mitch McConnell types would play the game that way. Uh, it's about power for them. And, uh, and I've heard it said, and I, I was hesitant to believe this, but they, uh, I think Mitch McConnell was more concerned about uh, being where he is and having the kind of uh, power that he has, even if it's a, as an opposition party or minority party, I, I think more so than uh, actually accomplishing any agenda. The only thing that upsets my apple cart with all that and kind of discombobulates my brain is that he worked so hard, Mitch did, to get through three fairly conservative Supreme Court nominees and, and lots of other appointments that Trump made all selected by the Federalist Society, that he ended up, uh, he, probably Mitch McConnell's efforts at that were decisive and ended up making, like Roe v. Wade overturning that is something, major accomplishment. And and several of the things, the DEQ, recent DEQ ruling that doesn't allow the bureaucracies to uh, just create rules that go mm, beyond yeah. what the uh, uh, intent of Congress was. Something that's that's one of the secret weapons of the left is uh, administrative rules that that bureaucracies create to implement legislation that's very like Congress general. just they just delegate and they just and they just go make it go way beyond. So the real rulers are the bureaucrats that are unelected, rather than the actual legislators in Congress who passed the legislation, created the laws. And so, uh, and Mitch has Mitch was very instrumental in getting. In fact, he was key to getting those three nominees through, and Merrick Garland not through. Mm -hmm. You know, when he was nominated uh, be, by before. Uh, and he just refused to even give him a, give him a vote so or hearing. Who would? I mean, this is a total hypothetical. If if Merrick Garland does get to the Supreme Court, who does who does Biden make his attorney general? Who are the uh, like? Do you do you have any idea no who idea. like would we be? Apparently, would you don't we have be, to be qualified to be there? So would we be better off if Merrick Garland did get on the Supreme Court? Well, I guess not with as long as he replaces one of the far lefties, and that's probably not going to happen because there's nobody left that's that's old. That's the the old people now are on are the Clarence Thomas types that are on the conservative side of things. So uh, I don't I don't see Merrick Garland ever getting on the U.S. Supreme Court. I mean, who knows? That's a, that's down the road. But uh, he's clearly uh, one of their favorites, and he's shown himself to to be uh, uh, much more of a far left guy than he 
was represented when he was nominated as a moderate. Well, and Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh, and I don't know how old Neil Gorsuch, He's not Gorsuch is, but who's, I mean, the Supreme Court is pretty young right now. Well, Alito's not that young, and neither, and, and that's the fifth, the fourth of those, and Clarence Thomas is fairly old, but he's going to, he, no way Clarence Thomas is leaving voluntarily without uh, there being a conservative Republican to replace him. So why don't, why do you think that the Supreme Court, I mean, the Supreme Court is like the one institution that the conservatives still have. Why aren't they taking on more, why, why didn't they look at any of the evidence from, from the election? Why have they decided not to rule on cases regarding that kind of thing? But then they'll go take on Roe v. Wade. Yeah, that, there's... I don't know, an, I don't have an answer to that question. I've certainly pondered it. Uh, it seemed like they were totally uninterested in whether there was election fraud. And maybe there's something coming down the pipe, down, down the pipe that we haven't, you know, foreseen. But I, I, I was kind of shocked that they, re, they refused to look at anything. Me too. And, uh, uh, maybe there's things going on, discussions being held, you know, but we've had Joe Biden for almost two years now and he's done a lot of damage. It feels like 20. It does. And he's done a <laughs> lot of damage. And if I, if, if, if nothing else, just at the border and the millions of people that have come in and the, the, the levels of, of drugs that have, the, especially fentanyl that have come across the border, uh, since he was president is just mind-boggling. Hopefully that will cost the Senate, them the Senate, cost them, a, them, them the House as well. But, uh, uh, you know, the, the voters aren't, they don't pay tons of attention to the details. If you think about it, where, where do they get their news? Okay, they got Fox News, which is center-right, okay? They're not staunchly conservative. Well, they, they're more conservative from uh, maybe Jesse Waters or Tucker Carlson on through the evening. They're more conservative. Than well, they even had Sean stories Hannity coming out that Laura Ingram, et cetera. They had stories coming out about the the Mar-a-Lago raid, saying it was justified and that the FBI was doing a good job. And well, mid midday and mornings, you're going to get more of that. Now, but this was this was in print. I didn't yeah. hear it coming out of anybody's mouth. Well, Fox is a mixed bag, and uh, their weekend people are. So there's a couple of them that I just think, why in the world do they have those on there? It's like, what was the gay guy that went off and joined CNN? I forget his name. Chris Wallace. No, no. Besides Chris Wallace, Chris Wallace was the moderate guy. The I can't remember the guy's name now. He's younger guy. Anyway, they had those kind of guys, and they've kind of Shepherd. yeah, Shepherd, Shepherd Smith. Yeah, and uh, thank you, producer mom. <laughs> so. Producer wife and uh, <laughs> uh, Shep- Shepherd Smith. I mean, he's gone, but they had those kind of guys. But but they they are. Uh, if you think about it, Fox. You know, they lead the ratings uh, commandingly. But but if you look at the total percentage of people watching TV at any given moment, what percentage of them are watching uh, Fox News? Uh, it, it means that you know ninety ninety five percent of the people in America are still are still watching. TV dramas and sitcoms and well, they're ABC, watching NBC, CBS, CNN. I would, NBC. I would argue that that the bulk of of the the you know voters are watching Netflix, 
and Hulu and Disney Plus and HBO Max where they yeah. can skip commercials and the news is never on. Yeah. Then they go get on Twitter and they see whatever Twitter wants them yeah, to see. It's, only, it's all filtered. And uh, let, me, let me tell you a little side, sidebar. I used to have a radio show in Portland. Okay. And uh, the most popular conservative talk show host in Oregon was Lars Larson. Is also nationally syndicated, but he has his own local show that's an Oregon show. Yeah, I think he has that. a podcast too. And Lars uh, uh, was ruling the roost, if you will, amongst conservative talk show hosts. But and he had what's what would be called approximately a 4.0 rating. Well, 4.0 rating is really good for a radio station. If you think about it, there were 40 some radio stations in the Portland market at the time. I, I had two of those actually at one time. There were there were forty some stations, and if you got your fair share, you would have two to two point five rating points. If you got your fair share, which means Lars Larson with four was way higher than others. But keeping that in context, that meant that when Lars was on the air, ninety six percent of the people are not listening to Lars Larson. They're listening to the radio. They're not listening to Lars Larson. So the uh, the power of a Fox news network to influence public opinion is somewhat limited just based on the fact that there are so many television stations with all those cable shows and all the satellite shows, et cetera. There are so many stations that if they're just getting the small percentage, you add them all up, and Fox has only got, even though they're killing it amongst concern, amongst. Yeah, uh, the news cable cable news stations they they have a really small audience compared to the overall audience. And do they have influence? Yes. Is it outsized for the, for who they are? Yes. But they uh, you the, the rest of the public is pretty is pretty frankly ignorant of of what we what what why the conservatives believe. They're fairly they're fairly ignorant. And I get in conversations with people all the time about this, and I'm shocked at how little they actually know. And uh, uh, you remember the, the song written after 9-11, Alan Jackson wrote, uh, called Where Were You When the, when the uh, World Stopped Turning, about, the, about the, the towers and the crashes. And uh, in, in there, there's a line. He says, I'm just a singer of simple songs. I'm not a real political man. I'm, I watch CNN, but I'm not sure I can tell you the difference between Iraq and Iran. Well, I, when I hear that, I say, yeah, Alan, that's why you can't tell the difference between Iraq and Iran is because you watch CNN. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's another thing. And, and I attribute this to Obama and his Smith-Munt Modernization Act that he did in, in 2013. An interesting sidebar. Um, there's a video going around of a, of a lawyer, a, a, a TikTok lawyer. Well, he's a lawyer that, that posts videos on TikTok being offered. $400 to basically make a propaganda video about January 6th and Trump. And yes. this was sent out by the, the good information supposedly foundation yeah, in quotes established in two thir 2013, the same year that Obama created the Smith Munt modernization act, which made it legal to, to disseminate propaganda to yeah. the masses in, right. in this country it used to be, if you wanted to create propaganda in this country, that was okay, but you had to send it overseas. Well, now they can use it here right. in the United States. And we have this, this good information act, uh, 
or this good, this good information foundation and good information incorporated, which has ties to George Soros. And it has effectively, this Smith modernization act has effectively made it so that people that like to get their information from CNN and believe things that CNN says will tell you that what they hear on Fox news is all propaganda and it's all bogus. And you, you, you can't believe anything Fox news says, but then the people that are watching Fox news and Tucker Carlson, they'll all tell you the same thing about CNN and right. MSNBC, that that's all propaganda. So how, how do we find like that? This is why I have a podcast because there has to be some sane mind to, to look through and go, well, Rupert Murdoch, the owner of, of Fox News, he's got a personal agenda. And this is why I asked you, like, wh- who were who the people or, or how many people came to you with, you know, wheelbarrows full of money to say, hey, I have this self-serving measure that I want to put on the ballot because Lars Larson has a four share. But if he starts saying, I mean, I, I use Howard Stern as an example all the time. I don't know if you ever saw his movie, Private Parts. Never saw it. No. He's, there's several scenes in the movie where he's getting ripped by his you know, production managers and uh, program directors for being, you know, whatever he was saying, it was vulgar and, and inappropriate. They were trying to shut him down and shut him up because the advertising dollars weren't coming in. They were losing sponsors because these sponsors heard him saying these things and said, no, this isn't okay. You got to get rid of this guy. We're not going to fund it. Yep. So when, when we have, when, when that's so exposed as it is now, you, you know that people will watch Fox News and go, who's paying for that? And watch CNN and go, who's paying for that? So how, how is a... How is a country going to recover when CNN is doing some, like CNN just fired Brian Stelter, right? right? Little George Costanza guy. And they just, um, they've, they fired Don Lemon from his primetime show. And the headline said he works in the basement. Now it was, I, I don't know if it was the onion or Babylon B or, or, He's a, or he just has a morning show now. So, but they, I don't hear about them firing producers or, you know, the, the, the message is still going to come through the mouth of someone else. So, so how does it, does a politician have to create some legislation that infringes on our rights and freedom of the press to correct this problem? What's, what's the way out? We Do, or does does just new new broadcasting talent have to rise to the surface? We well, first off, the the the, the prod the podcast sphere uh, is growing almost exponentially, and people are getting their news and information from a lot of sources. But let me let me take you back um, the during the time when the U.S. Constitution was being uh, before it was ratified, there were the Federalist Papers that were. Uh, Disseminated through newspapers, uh, ed- there were like an editorial under the pen name Publius that was that were designed to convince the thirteen colonies or the thirteen states that they should uh, ratify this constitution. And one of the things that people people in America, frankly, in general, don't grasp is that the founders were very uninterested in the concept of democracy. The reason they picked a Republican form of government versus a democracy is they considered democracy just mob rule. And they 
the French Revolution would have been an example of that, where the majority ruled. The majority just started cutting off heads <laughs> because they had the votes, if you will, and the masses, the ignorant masses, as they thought. Well, one of the things the founders said that I've never forgotten, I probably read this 40 years ago for the first time, they said that in a democracy, editors rule as surely as if they had a scepter in their hands. Now, think about that. In those days, a newspaper was printed by hand, run off, you know, very slowly, distributed uh, by horseback, uh, and not widely distributed, and then carried out, you know, to uh, further reaches of the, the state or the area, their market. And you might get one that was a month old. And yet, the founders believed in that world, with that limited, you know, primitive, if you will, form of communication or media, they believed that editors ruled as surely as they had a scepter in their hand, because in a democracy, public opinion shapes public policy, and whoever shapes public opinion is the one who really is calling the shots. Well, compare that to the world that we live in today where there's instant communication worldwide uh, through electronic media, through your computer, through your television, through your radio in your car, your satellite, etc. That what you, uh, what we're hearing today, the ability of the media to influence uh, the, the opinions of the public is so amplified over what it was 250 years ago that if what if what the founders feared with the power of newspaper editors how much more they are the media is a threat how much more they control how people vote and that's why i mean i i would have been my i put measures on the ballot and they would get you know 50, 49 to 55% over and over and over again, and yet against against the will of the popular press in your and, state. and they were the media smeared my measures nonstop. There was they never endorsed. Well, they endorsed one of my measures only because they didn't know it was mine. I let somebody else put it on the ballot for me, and they endorsed it. <laughs> Smart, yeah. But but all the rest of them they opposed, and and if they didn't pass, they almost all of them came very very close to passing, like forty nine point six percent kind of closeness, and so. The, they, the media has a limited power, but it's only limited in certain circumstances. In my case, there was a measure on the ballot, which is, has a, an official ballot title describing if you vote yes, this is what happens. If you vote no, this is what happens. And it's very hard to get for the media to tell people that uh, don't vote for this measure because of blah, blah, blah. When they read it, they say, yeah, but I like what it says, and they'll vote for it. And people said, I, mean, I, I don't even like Bill Sizemore. I've heard nothing but negative things about him, but he's got a measure to cut my property taxes. I'm voting for it. Mm-hmm. And so it passes. And so the media has limited ability, but when it comes to politicians, if they smear you nonstop, 24-7, it's very difficult for you to overcome that because people don't have firsthand knowledge. I, I would go out, give me give you an example. I would go out to a group and the group would be not be friendly. And I would talk to them uh, for 20, 30 minutes. And I'd come out with nothing but fans because they heard me. I, I went to my spoke to the convention of, of county commissioners. They had a convention over in Pendleton in the east side of the mountains. And uh, 
I got up and spoke for 45 minutes. Well, I had just cut their budgets, all of their budgets, because I'd passed property tax cut, a billion dollar property tax cut. And so I'm asked to come and speak to this group. And I know it's going to be a hostile group. You know, I'm, I'm, I've, heard, I've, I've, I've hurt their budgets. And uh, I got up and speak. And I'm telling you, when I'm done speaking, people start standing up. These are county commissioners from around the state. Say, you know, Mr. Sizemore, this is typical, what they would say. Uh, in front of all their colleagues, I uh, never heard you speak before. I've only heard what you've said through, filtered through the media. And now that I've heard you speak in person, in your own words, I have to tell you, I agree with everything you said today. And uh, then they'd sit down, another one stand up and say the same, another one stand up and say the same thing. And so, but, but the ability to go out and speak to all of those people in the state face-to-face is impossible. It's, you can't do it in a, uh, in a statewide election. You can do it in your city council. You might be able to go door-to-door to every door in your district. You might do it as a state rep. Harder as a state senator because it's a bigger district. But running in a congressional race that's much larger district or a U.S. Senate or gubernatorial race, anything that's statewide, you don't have a chance to go out and people see you face-to-face. A few people will. And guess who shows up at all those times when you go to speak to the Rotary Club or the Kiwanis Club or the Lions Club or the City Council or, I mean, I mean the, the Chamber of Commerce? Who shows up? The media. And then they write a story about Bill Seisner came, and this is what he said. Well, and it's all filtered through them, and it doesn't represent what you actually said. And so you, most of the people are reading that, not actually attending the meeting. So the media is still shaping public opinion, much more so than it did when the founders feared the media and, and called them kings who ruled with a scepter because they shaped public opinion. Well, I've, I've said often, and we got to wrap it up, but I've, I've said often that the people that hate America have learned how to use our system against us. And one of, one of the, the core tenets of our system and our Bill of Rights is the freedom of the press. So then Obama comes in and says, hey, you can lie to them now. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I guess we'll, we'll have to end on that positive note. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's Because the kids are here. Yeah, it's always been that way, though. If you, if you went back to the days when, like, when you go, look at, at uh, Abraham Lincoln's race, and the newspapers, they didn't, they didn't disguise, they didn't pretend to be nonpartisan back then. They were, this is a Republican newspaper. This is a Democrat newspaper. And it was pure, absolutely party agenda, party propaganda. Uh, and they, they were just spokesmen for whatever view they were. Now they pretend that they are neutral and that they are just giving you the news when in fact it's just as biased as it was back then, only it's disguised. Well, Bill Sizemore, thank you for joining me. Absolutely. We'll have to do it again soon. Probably cool. remotely. But here we are in... in in living color on the road. This will be interesting to see how this comes, comes together. Uh, but thank you all for listening. Um, Bill Sizemore, BillSizemore.com. Oh uh, yeah, I have BillSizemore.com. You can read all about you you, you've written several books. We didn't get into any of that now, but, uh, another time. All right. It was good to see you. Yeah. Thanks Ryan. You too.